Hey, good morning. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be back. It's really good to be back. It's good to see you. Um, I want to take a minute. This feels like it's about to break. That's why I'm fiddling with it, but we'll make it. Um, I want to take a minute to just thank um, John and thank Clint for preaching while I was away on vacation. And um, I learned a few things. I had a, thank you, Joe, had an opportunity to um, listen online. I don't know if you know that you can do that, but if you're not here one Sunday and you want to catch up with us where we are in our series, um, you can listen online. And I had a chance to do that. And I learned a few things. I learned that Paul, um, like any great dad, loves boats, um, which I didn't know, and that he literally bores people to death with his long lectures. So thank you, Clint, for that particular gem. If you didn't catch that or you weren't here for it, because I know a lot of people are on vacation, um, you can always go online and hear it. But thank you to Clint and John for, for holding down the fort, and um, thank you for the opportunity to have time on vacation. It was great. I want to wish you all a happy Fourth of July weekend. I hope you've had some time either away from work or some time to grill or some time to relax or see some fireworks, um, some time to celebrate the privilege that it is to live and to worship in the United States. Because it is a privilege to live and to worship in the United States. It's, a, it's good to be an American. Unless you travel overseas, uh, when, when Krista and the family and I lived in England for a while, everybody said, just tell them you're Canadian. That's... But I think it's cool to be an American. I really do. We have, we have a rich history of heroic men and women. We have documents that were created here that would change the course of human history as we know it. We have, there are battles that were fought and won. We have a nation that's like forged by grit and determination and things that we really value. A nation that was purchased with the lives of people that are committed to those ideals, the idea of freedom and of liberty, and we get to live in a nation where we enjoy many of those things. I love our history as a nation. I get excited about it. I like learning about it. That's not true for everybody, but that's true for me. I get really excited about history. We're really privileged to live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, to enjoy freedoms that a lot of people are not able to enjoy. There are a lot of advantages to being an American we have a very culturally diverse, culturally rich nation, all kinds of freedoms that we enjoy. And while my family and I were away, we had an opportunity to take a road trip to Colorado. I just want to say thank you for allowing us that opportunity as the church to go away on vacation and spend time together. And I love road trips. I love old signs. I love open country. I love traveling um, and just seeing all the things that you see when you drive through the country. And we had an opportunity to see some of the most beautiful places from here to Colorado, driving through Nevada and through Utah, and then Colorado, then back through New Mexico and Arizona. 2,200 miles in seven days we did with our family. And I'm grateful that our family, our kids are now at an age where a road trip is a viable option because I love taking road trips. It's so much fun. We saw some of the most unbelievable places. Um, and really, during that trip, <clears throat> all those miles, we really saw a fraction of what there is to see. And all I could think of as we were standing in these beautiful places, so standing in 
Zion, for example, and looking up at these unbelievable rocks, if you've ever been there, or standing over Bryce Canyon and looking down, and all I could think of over and over again was that God spoke this into existence. God spoke these places into existence. That's unbelievable. We saw a tiny fraction of what there is to see between here and there, which is a tiny fraction of what there is in the United States, which is a tiny fraction of what God has created in the world. And it's unbelievable. And everywhere around us, I just feel like all I could see everywhere were the fingerprints of God, overwhelmed by his majesty and his power. And as Americans, we get to live in that country, in this beautiful place where we see the fingerprints of God all around us. We live in a nation whose very rocks cry out, if I can just borrow that phrase. The rocks cry out and tell of God's creativity and of his majesty and of his awesome power. We live in a nation where if you were to look at our money, we would declare our trust in God. It's everywhere we look. Our trust in Almighty God. And yet, after a very restful time away, I had unplugged from email and social media and really even the news, we returned to this wildfire of national controversy. And if you um, get a newspaper or you subscribe to a blog, or if you watch CNN or you watch Fox News, or if all the news you get is from Facebook, you know what I'm talking about. Because it's everywhere. Because the Supreme Court of the United States has given us a new definition of marriage, one that we believe is contrary to Scripture, one that we believe is contrary to God's design. And if Facebook is any indication, we're very confused about how to respond to this as the church. And we live in a nation that is deeply confused, where the fingerprints of God are explained away as nothing but a scientific phenomenon. And where in God we trust is just a quaint reminder of the religious romanticism of our founding fathers. So this morning we're going to take a break from our study in Acts, just for today, just for this week. And we're going to have a conversation about God and country, which seems appropriate for this weekend, and it seems appropriate for this time in our nation. What is the role of the church in America? As the church, what are we supposed to do? It's not meant to be a patriotic sermon. It's not meant to be a political sermon. I actually don't think either one of those things would be appropriate for us, but given the time, given the circumstances, given the weekend, I feel like this is a conversation that our church family needs to have because I think we need to know what an appropriate response looks like. And when I say an appropriate response, I mean, what are we supposed to do as the church? What is our role This morning we're going to look into God's Word. We're not going to look into God's Word to define the definition of marriage. I don't think we need to do that this morning. And if you need to know where our church stands on this issue and you need it to be defined for you, our overseers have written a position paper on this exact thing that will be available online this week. I can make it available to you. You can email me. You can ask me for it. We can give that to you if that's what you want. But that's not what I want to talk about this morning. I want to consider what our role is 
as a church. And I think Peter actually gives us some really good insight to this. Peter actually gives us some really good wisdom here. We're going to hear from Peter this morning about what it looks like to live as a kingdom citizen. What it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. To live as a Christian in context. To live in the, as a Christian in the context of where God has you. That's exactly what he's doing for the believers that he's writing to in 1 Peter. And then in light of 1 Peter, we're going to talk about what that means for us. What does that mean for us as the church now? How do we live well? How do we respond well to a culture that's deeply confused about who they are and deeply confused about who God is? Because that's where we find ourselves as a nation. We believe that God is real. We believe that the Bible is his word. We believe that eternity is long and that heaven and hell are real places. We believe that God's people should be equipped to handle truth and to handle that graciously and be able to face the questions and the issues that we now face as a nation and as a church. This, by the way, is not the sermon that you want to preach when you come back from vacation. This is not what you want to spend your week preparing when you've spent some time relaxing. This is intense, and I want to be very careful, and I want to be very truthful, and I want to be very prayerful. And so I would just ask if you would join me now in prayer, and then we're going to open the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. As our nation celebrates independence, we're grateful to you to live in a place like this, surrounded by your beautiful creation, blessed to live in a country where we experience all kinds of freedom. In a country, Lord, where we're able to come into a public high school and declare the gospel and praise your name, and so we thank you genuinely for those things. And yet our hearts are heavy this morning, Lord, because we see our nation celebrating rebellion from you. We are celebrating sin. So Lord, would you help us to anchor ourselves in truth? Would you help us to be gracious and compassionate to those who don't know you? Lord, would you speak through your word this morning? Would you speak through me? Lord, would you keep me from saying anything that would not honor you? Would you give us your wisdom as your people who want to bring you glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you would, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, all the way at the back of your New Testament, or nearly all the way. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to use one of ours. We have them in the aisles here. You can get up and grab one. If you raise your hand, we'll pass one down to you. We're going to be in 1 Peter. If you're using our Bible... You're going to be on page 1015, <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at Peter's letter to a group of people who have been marginalized, a group of believers who've been marginalized, they've been ostracized, they have been shamed because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. They've turned away from what is culturally acceptable, they have turned away from cultural beliefs. And they have been marginalized because of it. They have been persecuted because of it. And people are angry with them. And Peter is writing this letter to a group of believers who are scattered all over the place to encourage them and to give them some wisdom. And so as I think about where we are right now, I think 
I just thought this is where we need to look. I like Peter. I identify with Peter because he's just plain spoken. He's much easier to understand sometimes than a lot of other writers. He just says things the way they are, and I really appreciate that. We're going to look this morning, starting in chapter 2, verse 9, and the first thing that we're going to see that Peter encourages these believers is to live as kingdom citizens. He's going to say, you guys are kingdom citizens. Before you get too worked up over the state of things, before you get too worried about the context of things, it's important for you to remember who you are, it's important for you to remember where you're going, and it's important for you to remember who you belong to live as kingdom citizens, because that's who we are. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, that is your identity, your true identity. So look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, it says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, as followers of Jesus, your true identity is in Christ. You are children of God. Your citizenship is in heaven. You were chosen, you were saved by God, and you were saved by God to be his children, to be his own possession. How great is that? How great is that to know that? And that should bring some comfort, some relief. And what's the purpose Peter tells us that they were chosen so that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why. That's the purpose. For the purpose of declaring the greatness of God and what he's done for them. You are his children. You are his possession. And I want you to declare what God has done for you. That you like the rocks of Zion that our family was able to see while we were on vacation, would declare the wonders of God and what he's done. That your life would proclaim the great exchange, the trade that has taken place, that God has done a work in your life and exchanged darkness for light. We talk about the gospel sometimes as being the great exchange, that Christ would take our place that he would replace darkness with light, that we were living in open rebellion to God. We were lost to sin, destined for separation from him. And yet, Jesus exchanged his life for ours. Jesus took our place. Jesus accepted our punishment and freed us from the penalty of sin. I mean, does that ever get old? Do you ever get tired of hearing that story? Because if you get tired of it, I'm not sure you get it. The exchange that has taken place, that we are adopted as children of God and we belong to him as his possession so that when we come together here and praise him or hear from his word or talk to each other, that we would talk all the time about what God has done. 
that we would, as Peter says, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter says, once you did not belong, now you belong to God. Once you lived under the wrath of God and now you have received the mercy of God, do you understand what that means? Do you understand what a big deal that is? This is who you are, and you're meant to proclaim it. And then he says, then you're meant to live it. You're not just meant to tell everybody about it. Your life is meant to show it. Peter says, you don't belong here. You see where he says that? You're sojourners here. You're just passing through. You're to live as exiles. You're to live as aliens. This is not your true home, so don't live here like you belong here. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Resist temptation. Live in a way that honors God and points people to Jesus. Do you see that? So that even those who speak poorly of you, ultimately, they're going to give glory to God. That's what Peter says. We live as kingdom citizens because that's who we are. That's what Peter would say. We live as kingdom citizens because that's our true identity. So let's not forget that in the midst of our frustration or in their case, in the midst of their persecution, don't forget where you really belong. Don't forget how God has called you to live. Don't forget that you are his possession claimed by him. Second, he says we submit to human authority. Uh Uh-oh, we don't like that. Verse 13 Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor. Man, we really struggle with this one. Remember that 1 Peter is written to a group of believers that are living under persecution for their beliefs. This is not like a being thrown to lions kind of persecution. This is a social persecution. This is enduring public shame. This is enduring insults and abuse and rejection for what they believe. These are people that are losing money or losing their jobs or losing their property because they've identified themselves with Jesus Christ. And Peter's writing this letter to them as an encouragement, and he's trying to also help them to avoid unnecessary persecution. The idea is not to go out looking for a fight. The idea is to live in a way that honors God and to point people to Jesus And so Peter's saying, you submit to human authority. As Jesus said, you render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And Peter says, you submit to human authority for the Lord's sake. Scripture is actually really clear on this point. Human authority is established by God. He's the one who sets up rulers. He's the one who removes them. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21 says this. I'll read it for you. Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. Verse 21 says this, He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. If you find yourself frustrated with where we are right now, if you find yourself 
frustrated with where the country is headed, you're frustrated with the president or the government or the Supreme Court, this would be a great verse to memorize this week. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. Here's the catch. We are kingdom citizens submitted to human authority by the will of God. He's asked us to do that. But there is a point where human authority can no longer be submitted to because it is in direct contradiction to the law and will of God. And at that point, I would refer you back to where we've been. Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. We must. We have to obey God first. And Peter establishes this hierarchy, and he does that in verse 17. If you would look at verse 17, it says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor or king. That can be translated as king as well. There's two couplets here that I think are worth spending some time with. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Honor everybody. This is more than being civil. This is not just put up with everybody. This is give honor to everyone. That's a true respect for everyone. Later in chapter 3, Peter is going to call them to have sympathy, a tender heart, to be humble-minded, to not repay reviling with reviling or hate with hate, but to repay hate with blessing. That's what Peter's talking about. That's how we ought to live with others. When he says honor everyone, that's the kind of thing that he's talking about. So, Facebook users, do not repay reviling with reviling, but reviling with blessing. How hard is that to do? That's the kind of honor that he's talking about. Then he says, love the brotherhood. So you honor everybody, but there's a special kind of honor for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's love. So you honor everybody, but you love the brotherhood. You love the people in the church. You care for them because you're in this together. So you care for them and you carry the burdens together. You love one another in the body of Christ. Do you see the difference between the two? And then he says... Fear God, honor the king. Or fear God, honor the emperor. We honor the emperor. We've talked about what that looks like. We give honor, we give respect. We submit to authority as far as we can before it contradicts the will of God. But we fear God. Fear is reserved for God alone. What does that look like? I think we have time for this. One of my favorite stories of Jesus is in Mark chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. Most of you remember the story, the disciples are on the lake. It's early in Jesus' ministry. They're on the lake with Jesus in the boat. He's asleep. They're in a crazy storm on the Sea of Galilee. Crazy storm. Fishermen who are in the boat with Jesus, they are afraid they're going to die. They are fearing for their life. That is a kind of fear that very few of us have ever experienced in our life. But that is intense fear. And if you read that account... They are freaking out. They're about to die. They wake Jesus up and they're like, don't you care that we're about to die? And then Jesus stands up and just says, quiet. Do you remember that? And the storm calms. The, The Sea of Galilee is calm. And then it says they had great fear. That's like fear above the fear of dying fear of God. That's what it looks like to fear God. This is beyond Fear. This is true authority 
respect, honor, true quaking, fall on your face, fear. That's what it means to fear God. So he says, honor the king. Yes, submit to human authority, but you fear God. So ultimately, we must obey God rather than men. There's a clear hierarchy displayed here. We cannot forget that God is sovereign. We cannot forget that every knee will bow. It will happen. We hope in God and we fear him because we know that salvation comes from God and so does judgment. So we live as kingdom citizens because that's our identity. We are submitted to human authority by the will of God as far as we can be. And then Peter says, and then you have to be willing to suffer. You have to be willing to suffer. Chapter 3, if you'll skip ahead, chapter 3, verse 13. This is a book worth reading, by the way, First Peter. I'd encourage you to just read it this week, but we don't have time for all of it this morning. Chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So remember, Peter's writing this to kind of help them out. So you don't, don't suffer for, for the wrong reasons. And he, just as a reminder, here's what Peter has told them to do. You are to live in a way that honors God. You're to submit to human authority. You are to honor everybody. You're to be sympathetic, loving, tender-hearted, humble. Who's going to have a problem with that? If that's the way that you live, who's going to have a problem with that? You don't go looking for a fight. Persecution is not the goal for the believer. But when it comes, he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. He says, but if you live this way, if you live the way I'm encouraging you to live and you suffer, that's fine because you'll be blessed. No problem. Take heart. Be encouraged. If you're going to identify yourself with Jesus, you have to understand that people are not going to understand it, or they're not going to like it, or they're going to hate it. Peter says there's a blessing for those who will suffer for righteousness. There's an important caveat here, I think. It says those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Do you know what that implies? There is not a blessing for people who suffer for being obnoxious. There there isn't. There's no promise of that here. I looked. There's no promise of blessing for people who are persecuted for being proud or uncaring or unloving or unsubmissive. There's no blessing for people who live in a way that's inconsistent with Scripture but have no problem using Scripture to beat everyone over the head and tell them what's wrong with themselves. Turns out there's no blessing for that. There's a blessing for those who suffer for the sake of righteousness, Peter says. And then he says, don't be afraid of those who persecute you. Remember, fear is reserved for who? God. We reserve fear for God alone. So don't be afraid of the people who persecute you. God's got this. Don't worry about it. The last part of 15 says this. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it's better to suffer for what's doing good, if that should be God's will, than for evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter says, here's what happens when you act honorably under persecution. People say, why are you doing that? How are you doing that? What would make you do that? What would make you live this way? What would make you return reviling with blessing? Who would do that? People are going to ask. So live this way and then be prepared to answer the question because it's going to come. Be prepared to point people to Jesus. He says, always be prepared to tell about the hope that you have. Well, our hope is in Jesus Christ. So he said, always be ready to point people to Jesus, but do this with gentleness and respect. We remember the always be prepared to share the gospel part. We don't always remember the second half of that, to be prepared to do this with gentleness and respect. We live in this way as an act of obedience to the Lord. We always also live in this way because it's kind of like self-defense. Peter says, they're either going to ask you what's wrong with you, like, why are you doing this? Or they're going to look like a fool. Because the way that you're living is inconsistent with what they're accusing you of. So it's kind of a win-win. They're either going to ask you to share the gospel, win, or they're going to look bad, win for you. Remember, Peter says, Jesus lived a righteous life and was killed that he might bring us to God. Look at that in verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the great exchange, there it is, that he might bring us to God. So in the same way that Christ suffered in order to bring us to the Father, Peter says, so we suffer in order to bring people to Jesus. Peter says, you live this way for the sake of the gospel. You live this way to tell the story of what Jesus has done. It's why you were called, just as 1 Peter 2.9 said, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Remember that? That's the goal. Our lives reflect our belief that we are kingdom citizens. Our lives reflect the belief that we're kingdom citizens. And so we just declare the wondrous salvation of God. That's what our lives should say. And we really believe that. And so because it's God's will, we submit ourselves to human authority as far as we can by the will of God and we live in such a way that people would glorify God. That's the idea. And we believe this so deeply, it's so much a part of who we are that we're willing to suffer that others might experience the wondrous salvation of God as well. That's the goal. So when we say, what is the role of the church in America, here's what I would say. I would say that we would tell the story of God and what he has done and then live in such a way that people believe us that we would tell the story of what God has done and then live in such a way that people believe us. That's what we're meant to do as the church. Our country has institutionalized sin and then celebrated it. It's not the first time this has happened, by the way, and it will not be the last time. I'm quite convinced of that. But the law of the land now says that 
Marriage is between a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, and that those things are all good, and that those things are all right, and that those things are all equal, and that's not true. And we know that's not true because of God's word. And we must obey God rather than men. And then we watch as our neighbors and our friends and even our family members celebrate the rights to relationships and to marriages that are in open rebellion to the God that we fear and love. And for some of you, this makes you angry. Whether that's a righteous anger because your anger on behalf of God or just makes you angry because you disagree with it and you don't know what to do with that anger. For some of you, this makes you really sad because for many of us, this includes people that we dearly love. And when I think about this, I think about Jesus and I think about how Jesus lived And I don't remember Jesus being outraged at sinful people for sinning. I don't recall that. He was truthful. He was compassionate. He was gentle. He was respectful, never compromising truth, never. He called sin what it was, and he told people not to do it. If you remember the story of the adulteress who's brought before him, and what is the takeaway of that whole story Yes, you can stone her. Whoever hasn't sinned can throw the first stone. Remember that? And everybody leaves. But he's not condoning the sin because what does he tell her? Go and sin no more. We will call sin what it is. But Jesus, he was never compromising about that, but he was gentle, he was careful, he was loving. I don't remember him being outraged that sinful people sin. I think about what made him angry. It was people who were supposed to know better. I think it was people who claimed relationship with God or claimed to speak on behalf of God who acted in ways that were inconsistent with God and with his character. The fact that sinful people sin is not outrageous. Even that sinful people would be offended by us calling them sinful is not outrageous. It's actually quite understandable. It is kind of offensive, right, when you think about it. This happens to be true of all of us. Can I just say this? Those who promote and celebrate the gay lifestyle are not the enemy. The Supreme Court is not the enemy. The president is not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy a powerful enemy who is determined to keep people from experiencing freedom from sin, determined to keep people from experiencing the joy of salvation that is found through relationship with Jesus Christ. And we would do well to remember that, to remember who the enemy is. And just so we're clear, being gay is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. All of sin. And regardless of which sin, it all comes down to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. The question is, will you submit your life to the authority of Jesus or will you continue in rebellion? That's the question. 
people have said this is a really scary time for the church, and I actually disagree with that, and here's why. We have no reason to be scared. We reserve fear for God alone, and he's no different today than he was a couple weeks ago, right? God's not surprised. He's not up there thinking, what am I going to do now? He's not. And God says, I know the world is broken. You don't have to tell me the world is broken. That's why I sent my son to set it right. And I established my church as a means of pointing people to him. So here's what I would say to us. Let's stop pointing at sin and start pointing at Jesus. Can we do that? Can we do what we're here to do and point people to Jesus? As we consider our response, let's consider what Peter's encouraged believers before us to do. Let's live as kingdom citizens who are submitted to the authority, human authority that's given to us as far as we can be, ultimately submitted to God, uncompromising on issues of truth, God's truth, and willing to suffer the consequences, all for the sake of the gospel. That's what Peter encouraged the believers to do. What we have is an opportunity. We have an opportunity to love and care for people who are lost. What we have is an opportunity to swallow pride, to be sympathetic, to be tender-hearted, and to be humble. What we have is an opportunity to declare truth, God's truth, which is real truth and really helps people And really saves them. When we're asked to give a reason for the hope that we have. That we would point people to Jesus. What we have is an opportunity to stand with Christ. To live lives that declare truth. And the powerful love of Jesus. That is able to overcome sin. So let's worry more about what we believe than what others believe. As the church. Let's worry more about what we're doing than what others are doing as the church. Let's worry more about the sin in our own lives than the sin in everyone else's lives as the church. That we would tell the story of what God has done and then live in such a way that people believe us. That we would tell the story of what God has done and then live in such a way that people believe us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is hard for us. And we just claim, Father, that you are powerful and you are in control and you've got this. And so we want to be fully submitted to you and live in a way that honors you. We do not want to compromise truth and we want to love. We want to be your church. We want to represent you well. Would you help us to do that? Lord, would you keep us from dishonoring you And would you allow us opportunity to point people to your son who saves. We love you. We praise you this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.